Good evening. Thank you for coming this evening. Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 20. So if you have your Bibles or devices, you can go ahead and turn there to Acts chapter 20. I, I want to personally thank Pastor Kent for allowing me to speak. He was slated to do uh, the book of Acts in the month of January, and as you know, he preached this morning, Pastor Tim being away. And uh, with all that's going on in his life, uh, he graciously allowed me to step in and, and cover for this evening. I, I'm grateful for the opportunity to preach. So he'll be preaching again in Acts next week. And in fact, Acts chapter 20, if you're familiar with the book of Acts and you're familiar with the book or the chapter of Acts chapter 20, more than likely you're going to be familiar with the second half of the chapter. In fact, as uh, Paul meets with the elders in Ephesus and gives them a farewell sermon, really the only sermon we have in Acts given towards Christians. We have lots of sermons in Acts directed towards unbelievers, but this is the only one in Acts 20 directed towards believers. Um, you, you may be familiar with that. That's not what we're going to be covering tonight. So if anything, it's a teaser to come back next week to finish that particular chapter. What we're going to be covering this evening is the first part of Acts chapter 20. And frankly, I have to admit, the first time I read through Acts 20 in preparation for this, my thought was, man, he gets the good part of the chapter. But as is typical with when we study the Word, and we know God's Word is living and active, and God never wastes His breath. All Scripture is God-breathed, so it's here for a reason. There's much truth and, and really much application from what we're going to read tonight. So I want to encourage you uh, just as we move forward. Now, I will say this. There's probably going to be some names that I mispronounce. I've been reading them all week, so they sound great in my head, but they might not sound great out loud. Otherwise, however, I, I do have some maps on uh, that I'm going to show you, so you'll be able to see them where they are, and that's probably more important than my pronunciation. So we're going to be this evening, Acts chapter 20. I'm going to move my mic because I'm breathing into it heavily, and so there we go. Acts chapter 20, and we're going to be going through verse 17. After the uproar had ceased, and if you were here last week, um, the uproar here in Ephesus, Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. When he had gone through these districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months, and when a plot was formed against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and by Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. But these had gone ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and came to them at Troas within five days, and there we stayed on seven days." So there's actually a whole lot that goes on in verses 1 through 6. Verses 7 through 12 focus on an event that takes place in the city of Troas. And then afterwards, in verses 13 through 17, we have Paul traveling a little bit more, but a little bit differently than how he had before. So before we go any further, I want to just bring our attention 
to where Paul has been up to this point. So as you can see up here on the screen, there is Paul's second missionary journey. Now, Paul always started there at the city of Antioch. That was his sending church. And as you notice, he traveled from Antioch throughout Asia Minor, eventually up into the Macedonian region, where there are churches here like Thessalonica, Philippi. It's flickering. Uh, I'm sorry. It is plugged in. Yeah, there you go. All right, he was fiddling with it before, so. Technology is a fickle thing. Is it doing any better? I'm afraid to look at it, else I'll fall down and start salivating. So maybe if I skip slides. So it didn't like the slide. That was the problem. Okay. Well, we're just going to skip the whole second missionary journey and go right to the third, because that's where Paul is to begin with. All right. So Acts 20 is Paul's third missionary journey. His second missionary journey, he visited a number of these places. But the third missionary journey, we actually see him returning to several places where he had been in his first journey. In fact, as you notice, here we have Antioch traveling across through Asia Minor and then up through Macedonia. Now, he comes down into this Greece, into Greece, where he spends those three months in Corinth. Okay, and back in verse 3, it says he, there he spent three months, and when there was a plot there formed against him. Now, we're familiar with Corinth because of his letters to Corinth, correct? Back in first, verses 1 and 2, we really have Paul traveling from Ephesus here all the way up through Macedonia, so he's most likely visiting Philippi, most likely visiting Amphipolis, or Amphipolis, Thessalonica, Berea, and then down here into Achaia. So when I say there's a lot happening in those first few verses, there's a lot of mileage covered in that particular time. But during that time, not only is there mileage covered, there's also souls that are contacted. So in verses 1 and verse 2, it said, when he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. Now, there are times that as we look in the book of Acts, we have Luke, the author, really settling down and kind of drawing the reader, at us, the audience, our attention to a particular event, learning a lot of the details, learning a lot of the characteristics of the people. But then there are other times where Luke gives a simple summation of where people went and basically what took place. This is that. And so what we see here in the verse 17 verses is, is something that's kind of unique to all, of book, all the book of Acts. And in fact, Acts chapter 20 is kind of unique in the book of Acts because in Acts chapter 20, we don't see Paul explicitly evangelizing. And that's the point I want us to really focus on this evening, or maybe just kind of um, settle in on Paul's role not so much as the evangelizer, but as Paul, the strengthener and the maintainer of relationships with believers. Because part of the disciple-making process, part of the Great Commission, certainly is reaching souls with the gospel and seeing souls saved. But the necessary accompaniment to that 
is strengthening and maintaining relationships with believers. That's why I wanted to show you the flickering second missionary journey and kind of show you where Paul went because really in his third journey, he's going to many of the same places and he's visiting some of the same people. Why is he doing that? Is it to win more souls? Perhaps. But he's visiting places where souls had already been saved and where churches had been founded. And that's really, really important as we see the gospel going forward. So what I want to do this evening is I want to look at five roles that, that Paul fills as he strengthens and maintains his relationship with believers. Five roles, okay? The first role is the role of encourager. The role of encourager. And we see that in verse 1. After the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. We also see this again in verse 2. When he had gone through these districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to grief. You know, sometimes you'll hear the word bandied about here at church. So-and-so has the gift of exhortation. Okay. And what that may mean is they're perhaps good at coming alongside a believer who's caught in a sin and encouraging them to stop sinning and to start living biblically. And certainly that is part of exhortation. But this word for exhortation um, is not just simply correction. This word for exhortation can also, it's, it's really a mixture of warning, comfort, and encouragement. Warning, comfort, and encouragement. And in fact, what that really looks like verbally is Paul's speech to the Ephesian elders at the end of this chapter, what Pastor Kent is going to be preaching on next week, that exhortation. So Paul, he was sensitive, first of all, to their difficulties as an encourager. The end of chapter 19 going into chapter 20, there was this riot, this uproar, and yet Paul wanted to bring comfort and bring encouragement to these Ephesian believers. And then as he visited from one city to the next, from Philippi to Thessalonica to Berea and so on, he wanted to make sure and bring comfort and warning and encouragement to them. But not only was he sensitive to their difficulties as an encourager, he was thorough in his approach. You see, all of this detail at the beginning of chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, isn't just kind of throwaway information. Like, okay, so here's where Paul went. You know, there's a reason why Paul goes and visits those places. And as I mentioned before, it's because there's souls that are represented there who Paul had perhaps shared the gospel with already, and they had already come to Christ. And after he had given them much exhortation, he went down to Greece. Now, Considering that he went down to Greece, more than likely, we said, he spent time there in Corinth. Well, what do we know about the church in Corinth from 1 Corinthians? Was it a church that was very mature? Was it a church that was active in their faith and growing and free from worldliness and free from perhaps the sins that they had been sa saved out of? The answer is no. It was probably the opposite. To be sure, they were believers in Christ. Yet they were believers that were wrestling with disunity. They were believers that were wrestling with church membership. They were believers that were wrestling with having immorality within the membership. They were believers that were wrestling with Christian liberty and taking advantage of perhaps freedoms to be able to eat certain things that were offered to idols. 
They were believers that were abusing the Lord's table. They were believers that were taking each other to court. They were believers that were struggling with how to orderly express the gifts in the context of the body and to do it in an orderly way and not bring distraction. They were believers that struggled with the resurrection. They were believers that struggled, to be sure. And after this first letter from Paul to the Corinthians, we have an account in the second letter to the Corinthians of another letter that we don't have preserved. It was what Paul called a grievous letter. It was a letter that was a, a harsh letter at some level. Not harsh as abusive, but harsh, harsh in perhaps the way that Paul addressed their sin. And so when Paul goes down to Corinth, he's coming into an environment where, frankly, he's not exactly certain how well he'll be received. He had given them very specific instruction as to how they ought to live. He had been very upfront with even members that needed to be removed from their congregation. How would they receive him? But the fact is, is that Titus, who had gone ahead of him, said they had received that correction well. They had made necessary changes and that they were growing. And so when he came, they received him with joy as a brother and a, a leader in Christ. And so it was a time of encouragement, not just for Paul, but also for them to be able to meet with him as well. So Paul was an encourager. That was his role with these believers in verses 1 through 3. In verses 4 through 6, we see Paul as a partner, as a partner. Let's look in verse 4. And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, son of Pyrrhus, Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius, Timothy, Tychicus, Trophimus of Asia. But these had gone ahead, and they were waiting for us at Troas. So why these individuals? Are they significant? Well, some of them actually occur later on in the New Testament. But most of these individuals, this is really what we know of them. Why are they significant? Well, first of all, it shows a level of diversity within Paul's partnership. There's diversity with Jews and Gentiles. It's kind of interesting where it says that in verse 6, we sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. Gentiles, to my knowledge, didn't celebrate the days of unleavened bread, but Jews did. Yet there were Gentiles mentioned here in verse 4. So there was a really a mixture of Jew and Gentile believer, yet they were working for the same purpose. Not only was there a mixture or diversity of the partnership, but there was also fruit of this partnership. Now this is where I think some of the richness of the passage comes into play. Look at the cities that were mentioned there in verse 4. Sopater of Berea. Okay, so up here on the map, we have Berea up here in the top corner, uh, right there. Maybe Berea. We have Thessalonica mentioned, right? We also have, uh, we know Timothy was from, a uh, was from Ephesus. And, you know, so the general region there of Asia is given. Um, so we have Berea, we have Thessalonica, and we have Derby. Where is Derby? Um, somewhere over here. Where is Derby? I lost it. I think it was on my second slide. At any rate, um, we have four different cities represented. Why is that significant? It's significant because, first of all, Paul is seeing fruit from his ministry in four different places. You have people from four different cities partnering with Paul to go and to share the gospel. 
not only do you see fruitfulness, you also see growth in these particular churches. So these individuals were such that they had grown in the word, they were now joining with Paul, and they were partnering with him to spread the gospel. We see unity. We see unity. Paul and these individuals, both Jew, Gentile, from differing churches, unified together, working together. How easy is that? Seriously, how easy is that? How easy is that in Northeast Ohio? How easy is that in any region? And by the way, when you notice the proximity of some of these cities, I know traveling is a little bit different now than what it was then. But when you look at church history, some of the biggest conflicts within the church are cities and churches that are the closest together. You know, many times it's the church that's all the way across the globe that we can enjoy the sweetest fellowship with and perhaps see the most like-mindedness with. But sometimes it's the churches that are the most immediate where there can be the most struggle. And yet what we see with Paul, these relatively new churches, and you see these believers partnering together in unity, not just within partnership, but unity of the same message. They were proclaiming the same message. And they were missions-minded. These were young churches. They weren't just concerned about themselves and their own personal growth and their own survival. They were concerned about the giving of the gospel elsewhere. So there's a real richness in this list of names in how Paul demonstrated not just the role of encourager, but also the role of partner. The role of partner. And as they went forward, and as he was working with these individuals, he was well aware of the fact that these men would be his replacements in those particular areas. It wasn't just the Paul show, right? It was these men coming alongside him who in turn would go where? Back to Thessalonica, back to Berea, back to Derby, back to Ephesus. It wasn't like they just stayed with Paul and followed him around all the way back. No. They were strengthened and encouraged as they gave the gospel and partnering with him. But ultimately, it would have resulted in the strengthening of their own churches. And in doing so, encouraging these churches. Paul, by visiting these particular different places, was encouraging and partnering with them, showing them their value in the spread of the gospel. Can I tell you, just as a point of application, there are times where when we have within our particular, I, I think just within, within Christianity, and as, you know, I'm conscious of you know, raising children in Christianity, and, and the amount of time I'm, I'm speaking to a Sunday evening crowd where many of you have been saved for, for many years, where there can be a, a, a level of uh, encouragement that perhaps goes without saying but perhaps goes without. Where the faithfulness uh, can be ongoing, even perhaps for years, and perhaps there is, a, a, as that faithfulness continues, there's a sense to where maybe questions arise, or maybe circumstances change in your life to where it demands a level of attention, but perhaps don't want to visit, you don't want to bother a pastor, you don't want to bother anyone. So it just kind of gets pushed to the back. You know, and, and so years can go along, and, and as a result, things perhaps you know, can be overlooked. 
unintentionally, but they can be overworked. Can I just encourage you, especially if you're a parent of a child or a teen, and that perhaps that child or that teen could use some encouragement okay, to be able to feel like you can come and be able to ask the tough questions, and not just necessarily of the leadership behind the pulpit, but the leadership within our church. You know, so, so Paul, for example, spent three years in Ephesus. But Paul was training those elders in Ephesus to be able to lead their church. And later on in Acts 20, we see Paul rehearsing the details of his time there, where he went house to house and spent many hours with those individuals. And those individuals undoubtedly would have questions about certain things. And as they're reproducing themselves in their family, they themselves are going to have even more questions. Who would they go to? Would they have Paul available? Not necessarily. But they would have their leadership. And they would have maybe the second and the third generation. All that to say, it's easy to get into a well-oiled machine approach to Christianity where it's like, this is kind of what we do. This is how we do it. This is what it looks like. Don't ask questions. Except we don't say don't ask questions, but when the questions get asked, it's like, well, hey, aren't we beyond that? To which Paul, if he had to go back a second time and spend time with much exhortation, with much encouragement, and if he's bringing these men along with them who are ministry-minded, then the, I gotta believe that they're talking out what this exactly looked like. Gotta believe that they're going back and forth. And in fact, we see this in one particular instance in Troas. Because Paul was a partner with them. And they were partners with him. It was a two-way street of partnership. So this coming week, I have the opportunity. We're going down to Florida, and I'm speaking to uh, some of the pastors in a workshop about uh, young adults and young adults and their place in the local church and their place particularly in disciple-making in the local church. And we are still very much growing. I'm still very much growing in that. One of the points that, that I'm convicted by and I think all of us are convicted by is, is the fact that we want faces but sometimes we don't want voices. Does that make sense? Like it's good to have their face but sometimes we don't want the voice. Because the voice kind of might press us and cause us to stop maybe the pace at which we're going. And, and maybe it causes us to just settle and, and address a concern or address a question. Can I tell you, those are rich, valuable times. Why? Because those are the replacements. Not just my replacements, but that's the church. Those are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Those are partners in ministry. That being said, Paul sees this not just as, hey guys, join my team and let's go. You follow, sit down, shut up, and let's come along for the ride. No, they were partnering with him who in turn would go back and train their replacements who in turn would train their replacements. It was really a 2 Timothy 2.2 type of a relationship. So we see Paul as an encourager. We see Paul as a partner. But thirdly, we see Paul as a teacher. Paul as a teacher. Verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them. And by the way, this is at Troas. 
Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. So Paul was teaching, and his teaching really here was a dialogue. That word for uh, teaching there, um, where he began talking to them in verse 7, it's, it's a word that's used actually earlier in the book of Acts several times. It can mean reasoning. It's often accompanied by a back-and-forth question-and-answer style. And we see how long it goes, which would indicate that Paul's teaching was in-depth. The amount of time given to his teaching was extraordinary, and most likely it rearranged their plans. I mean, he had intended on leaving the next day, but there he is teaching until midnight. Now, what would that be like if I taught till midnight? That would be very bad. But what happens when people sit and listen for a long time? They get drowsy. And that's exactly what happened here, verse 9. And there was a, verse nine, and there was a young man named Eutychus. You know what the word Eutychus means? Good fortune. If you know the story of Eutychus, it's hardly anything but good fortune, at least at the beginning of the story. You know, from a common vernacular, it's lucky. You know, so lucky is sitting in a windowsill. Sitting into a deep, or sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and picked up dead. The service was so long, Lucky got tired sitting in the windowsill. There's lots of lamps there, so some commentators say maybe the, the smoke, maybe the, you know, just it was really thick, so he wanted some fresh air. Falls asleep three stories down, and he dies. This is an awful thing. Now, when we read this, and we kind of know the end of the story, and we kind of chuckle, because honestly, the story is kind of funny. The guy falls out of a window, but it's not funny that he died. I mean, it's kind of funny that we're saying it's not funny, but somebody died at this church service. Would you remember a church service where someone died? I would. Especially if he fell out the window. <laughs> Three stories. Especially if he had any relationship to me. If he was a friend or, you know, if it was just some, sorry, visitors. If it was a visitor, you know, you don't know. But if this, this is somebody in their church, and he falls out and he dies, that would be something you would remember for a long time. But, praise the Lord, the story doesn't end there. Praise the Lord. He fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. But Paul went down and fell upon him. And after embracing him, after putting his arms around him, he said, don't be troubled, for his life is in him. This is a miracle. This is a miracle. And so Paul, by demonstrating not only his role as teacher, fourthly, he demonstrates the role really as an authority. You see, any miracle that took place in the New Testament church was to establish the authority of the messenger and his message. It was never just simply for a wow factor or to increase the offerings. It was to establish the, uh, the authority of the messenger and his message. And so Paul goes down. The man is raised back to life. And what happens then? They go back upstairs and they get something to eat. Verse 11, when he had gone back up and he had broken bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while. 
he didn't stop teaching. You know, one would think, okay, Paul, you've talked a long time so much so someone fell asleep, fell out the window and died. You had to bring them back to life, so maybe we should just cut it. But if that happened, I'm venturing to say, if that happened here, I'm venturing to say that you would probably really be interested in what that person who brought the dead man back to life had to say. And I'm venturing to say that you would have even more questions about what he had to say. And that's exactly what happened. Verse 11, when he'd gone back up and broken bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak and then left. Verse 12, they took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. Now, as I said before, this shows the authority of Paul in that it was a miracle. How else could the man survive? But the fact that Paul's authority is seen not only in what he does, but it's also seen in the believer's response to him. They continued to listen to him, like we said. Verse 12, they received great comfort from his ministry to him. To my knowledge, and I was looking through the New Testament, and admittedly I may have missed something, this is really all we know about the church in Troas. We don't have any letters written to them preserved. I don't know of any other addresses later on in Acts. There may be. But this particular event is what we know of Troas. Why is this significant? Well, it would have been significant to them because, first of all, they were able to join with Paul and celebrate the Lord's table. That was a special event in and of itself. This was an apostle. They were able to hear Paul's apostolic teaching, his authoritative teaching. They were able to see God's power in raising men from the dead. Now, the church at Troas wasn't, to my knowledge, a real big church. It wasn't a real significant church, not like Ephesus, not like the churches perhaps mentioned in Revelation chapter 2. So why include this anecdote? The fact is, is that as we continue to work through Acts here in the remaining months, we start to see little anecdotes like this. Like Luke spends time talking about these particular relatively significant but not so significant events as his letter concludes. Why? Because the events that take place in the spread of the gospel globally take place at the local and personal and individual level that there is significance with these particular believers in this city, in these events. Meaning, what they were doing and what they were learning was significant in the spread of the gospel in this area. And as that takes place from place to place to place to place to place, that region, that, those nations, those souls were being saturated with the gospel. That's how it spreads. Can I tell you that? The gospel doesn't spread by just kind of just here's a map and it just spreads there's individuals that hear the gospel whose hearts are changed by God who come to Christ then in turn live for Christ and spiritually reproduce themselves there is a significance in you as an individual living here in northeast Ohio carrying the gospel in action in word where God has called you to carry it I don't know that any of us is going to have the platform of the ministry or a ministry of, say, a Billy Graham. I doubt I'll ever speak to millions. I doubt any of you will either. And if we do, I don't think it'll be about the gospel. But that doesn't make our value any less significant in the Great Commission. And I'll tell you, sometimes it's difficult to believe that. 
sometimes, honestly, we just kind of look at, you know, churches like Troas and, and churches like Grace Church of Mentor or, you know, churches here in Northeast Ohio and, and what's, what's happening? I mean, honestly, are we even making a dent? Maybe your overtures this past Christmas time with your unbelieving family where you've had that opportunity to show Christ and talk about Christ again. What did it do? What impact has it had? And I'm going to do this again the next holiday, Easter? Or maybe the next time I'm with them? I mean, God, why don't you just save them? And then if we do see a soul saved, praise the Lord. But it's only just one. Man, praise the Lord that God didn't think, you're, eh, you're only just one. You know? You're one. You were worth Christ dying for. That's of an immense value. Yeah, this story is kind of funny. There's humor in the story of Eutychus falling out the window. There's humor in this. I mean, this is kind of what Troas is known for. Oh, yeah, you're the church where the guy, you know, I wonder if we're going to have that conversation in heaven. We meet some Christians from Troas. <laughs> Didn't Eutychus, like, fall out the window? And, oh, yeah, that's us. You know, heard that one before. <laughs> but truthfully, what a blessing it is that there were a series of relatively, air quotes, insignificant works where God is doing a work and souls were being saved and the gospel was spreading. That's how it worked. So Paul was an encourager, as we saw. He was a partner. He was a teacher. He was an authority. But finally, in verses 13 through 16, he was a human being. He's a human being. Where do we get that? Well, Verse 13, but we going ahead to the ship set sail for Assos. Okay, so here we are right along the coastline, back up to the uh, map here. We're going to be tracing really this path right around here. A bunch of these cities are going to get noticed. So Troas is up here where Eutychus was. So they're moving down to Assos. And so let's pick it up there. Uh, intending to take, intending from there to take Paul on board, for so he had arranged it, intending himself to go by land. Okay, so something's happening here. There's a ship that's going to be sailing, but Paul's not going to be in the ship. Paul's going to be on the land on his own. Verse 14. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. Okay, so Mytilene is down here just a little bit south. Right? Verse 15. Sailing from there, we arrived the following day opposite Chios or Chios. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing it. So that's this area right here. And the next day we crossed over to Samos, over there, just south. So they're working their way south down there, down the Aegean Sea. And the day following we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so he would not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. All right, so we see these roles of encourager, partner. Uh, we see authority. We see the role of teacher. But what's this with human being? Where do we get that? Well, in verse 13, all but Paul get on the ship and sail. But Paul, in, as he arranged it, verse 13, intended to go by himself by land. Why did he do that? I don't know. Maybe he just wanted some time on his own. 
I mean, he had spent the entire, you know, doing the all-nighter at Troas as far as teaching. Paul needed time. Paul needed time on his own. He is, in fact, a human being. Having his companions go on with him, him going by land, may have been an opportunity just to spend time in prayer. And you know what? Being a human being, he was a Jew. Verse 16, Paul decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time there in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now, scholars say that Paul, as he had traveled up through Macedonia, through Corinth, was taking a collection. In fact, we read of this in Romans, towards the end of Romans, where, in fact, in, while he was in Corinth, scholars believe that he wrote the book of Romans. Okay? So as he's traveling through here, he's carrying quite a bit of money. And they're taking a collection for the saints in Jerusalem. And so some scholars believe that Paul just wants to be back in Jerusalem for Pentecost to be able to deliver this collection to the struggling saints. These saints in Jerusalem had been hit hard, and so the other churches were partnering, and perhaps he wanted to just get back there for that. We don't really know that. But what we do know is that Paul was actually excluding certain saints because of time. And I say excluding from the standpoint of he did not want to go back to Ephesus. What he wanted to do is just move right along and go down to Jerusalem. But when he gets to Miletus, he summons for the elders of Ephesus to come see him. Not the entire church, just the elders. And next week, Pastor Kent will speak on what that message was. But Paul had invested a lot in the saints in Ephesus already. And Paul wanted to get to Jerusalem. Was that wrong? No, he was a Jew. Maybe it was, and I don't mean to be irreverent here, maybe it was a I'll be home for Christmas type of a mentality. He just wanted to be in Jerusalem for Pentecost. Why? Because he was a practicing Jew. He had practiced Judaism. He, he still celebrated, I mean, we saw it earlier, celebrated the days of unleavened bread. He's a human being. Paul had desires. He wanted to be on his own at times. We see Jesus wanting to be on his own for prayer, don't we? And so Paul, in his ministry to these saints, it wasn't like the pedal was to the floor, the gas was going, and he was going 100 miles an hour all the time. That there was actually time where Paul probably needed rest. Paul probably needed time on his own with his God. And Paul actually had preferences to be able to get to a certain place at a certain time. Yes, it may have been to minister to those particular saints, but it also may have been just for his own enrichment, if I can put it that way. This decision was, quote-unquote, at the expense of spending time with some of the saints at Ephesus, though he gathers the elders, like I said, there for final instructions. And sometimes, from a ministry standpoint, sometimes the most difficult decisions for Christians who are heavily invested in ministry, and as I look over the audience, I see a lot of you in that, in, in that, that, that boat. Sometimes the most difficult decisions for Christians who are heavily invested in ministry is telling the souls that they minister to have to wait or know. Isn't that hard sometimes to say, I, I, I just can't, you know, or, or no? So how do we know when too much is too much? If you are a disciple or if you're actively serving your ministry, how do you know when too much is too much? Well, we're told in Proverbs, wisdom is found in the multitude of counselors. That we should talk to those who disciple us, those who know us well, and be able to get their opinion. 
Talk to your spouse. Talk to your family. I'll tell you what, I've learned a lot from some of you who have deferred to your spouse when you really wanted to minister in a particular way, but your spouse felt it better to, you know what? And I'm thinking especially those of you wives who have deferred to your husband's leadership. I say, you know what, I'd really love to minister in this way, but I need to honor my husband. I've really appreciated it, especially some of you women who have had this big ministerial heart, and then the Lord brings perhaps a family change, maybe an addition. And all of a sudden, that heart to disciple and to go and to serve, and, to, and now you have this little one. It's like, well, this little one has some priorities now, and, and now I can't, at least not right now. So maybe the foot shouldn't be on the, the pedal shouldn't be on the floor for that. Maybe it should instead be for this. I think also to be able to talk to those who know you best, those in your spiritual family, to provide a level of objectivity. Where are you ministering and how often are you ministering? And if you were to stand before God at this moment, what souls would you have to show for your ministry efforts? And so two areas where we can all grow in this. Just being a human being, knowing that there's only so much heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's two areas where we can grow. First of all, trust. We can all grow in trust because God has provided the tools around us and within us to accomplish his plan. Sometimes that will involve us. Other times it won't. Paul was not concerned about the capacity of the leaders of Ephesus other than warning them, comforting them, encouraging them for those saints in Ephesus. Paul didn't have to go back to Ephesus and make sure every single one of those individuals was cared for. Why? Because their leadership was caring for them. He trusted them. And as we spiritually reproduce ourselves, it's sometimes a frightening opportunity to be able to trust others to help spiritually care for others instead of perhaps just garnering that to ourselves. Trust, but then also belief. Belief from the standpoint that those I am called to minister and those I have yet to minister to are infinitely valuable. So much so Christ died for them. And they're certainly more valuable than my ease. God has not called me for a Bermuda style of Christianity where I have my salvation taken care of, bring out the lounge chair, the uh, daiquiri, and the umbrella. Now I'm just going to coast this out until Jesus comes. No, that's not what God has called us to. But... Those who I've been called to minister to and in my life are not more valuable than biblical stewardship. How is God calling them to grow without perhaps my immediate presence? There may be some times where my immediate presence is not possible. It's, I'm just not able to be there. So how will God enable that person perhaps that I'm discipling to grow in that particular way? They're blowing up my phone and I can't answer them. I'm at a family gathering. They can wait. Maybe they should wait. Maybe that's God's will for them to wait. Okay? Maybe perhaps that there is an opportunity that we would love to take advantage of, but it's just not the time. Talk to your disciple. Talk to those who know you best. How are you currently ministering? And I'll tell you what, sometimes the pendulum can swing. I, I think many times the pendulum swings one way or the other, where we can be really, really overloaded and, you know, to the, at the expense of who God has really called us from a priority standpoint to minister to. But then the pendulum can swing way far over here to where our, our level of tolerance is so small, and I'm not trying to be insensitive to anyone, where it's like we're afraid to be pressed at all. No, I'm good. I don't know if I can ever do that. I'll leave that to others. And 
you know, I think at some level, sanctification is kind of like the pebble in your shoe. You ever had a pebble in your shoe? Okay. Pebble in your shoe is never comfortable. It's never like, ah. I mean, sometimes it's really painful, but it's kind of like a little nagging. Have you ever noticed that, like, sanctification can be like that? Where it's just, God, I don't want to do that. I'm doing okay, but, but it just keeps coming. Just, you know, it comes to mind. And you figure, okay, so it's, my flesh isn't putting this godly thought in my mind. So who is? Right? If, if it's not the Holy Spirit, then what is? So I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged and I'm, and I'm pressed to do that. Okay, God, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. I'll serve in this way. I'm going to trust you. Then it might also be, as I'm serving, in the back of my mind, I have this God-given priority that I seem to be neglecting. Maybe I'm taking advantage of, of someone who is deferring to me at this time when, when maybe it's my, my real priority is them. And it's just a nag. And I'm, yeah, I'm talking about the Bible. Yeah, I'm praying with them. Yeah, I'm giving them time. I'm talking with them on the phone. But it's like, you know what? God has given me this soul. And maybe I only have them for a certain amount of time. And I need to give them my attention. So this is just going to have to wait. Or, you know what? Let me have you partner with somebody else. At which point, they have to truly embrace the priesthood of the believer. Or maybe they don't get you. Maybe they get the JV. <laughs> but they learn to trust God working in that person. And it's kind of humbling when that person actually ends up being that much more equipped to do the work of the ministry than you would have been. So Paul is a human being. Acts is given to the unstoppable spread of the gospel, and the chapters that remain deal mainly with those who reject the gospel. Yet Acts 20 places the emphasis on those who had received it, who were changed by it, and who were now spreading it themselves. Those new relationships and responsibilities needed maintenance and reinforcement. They needed shepherding, and they needed settling. They needed teaching and loving care. So, in summation, think of your car. Okay? Does your car need maintenance? This morning I turned on my car, and it was making this weird sound. And I'm familiar with the sound because it's the sound that it makes when the power steering fluid is low. Those of you who know vehicles, you know that kind of high whiny sound? It was making that sound, and it was cold. And if you don't, just imagine a high whiny sound that your car isn't supposed to make for sake of illustration, okay? So I had some power steering fluid in my car. I don't like that sound. So I pop the hood, I lift off the thing, and I pour in the power steering fluid, and eventually it went away. Hooray! If all maintenance was that simple. But it needs maintained, right? Your car's oil should be changed regularly. Your tires should be rotated. Maybe some belts should be replaced. An air filter needs to be replaced. There's things that need to be done in order for your car to function properly. We all get that. We know that if we were to go to Honda of Mentor and purchase a brand new car, and the only thing we ever did to that new car was just put gas in it, we would drive it for a while, and it would work okay, but eventually it would break down sooner rather than later. The solution isn't going back to Honda of Mentor and getting another new car. That would be kind of silly. But I wonder if, from a ministry standpoint, 
we sometimes lose value or we don't see, maybe don't, we don't lose value, but sometimes we don't see the value of the ongoing maintenance of the faithful believer, the one who continues to come, the one who continues to serve, the one who, when we walk in the room, they're just here. We just take, kind of take for granted. And they're plugging and we see them talking to other people and it, it really just kind of escapes our notice sometimes. And I think sometimes, and I'm speaking for myself, that sometimes the old car that keeps running smoothly is not as flashy as the 2019 model. And when we like, if I can then move from the car illustration to the spiritual dimension, if we really get the thrill from seeing a new convert and we're invested in them for a short period of time, but then we just kind of expect them to fit into the church by spiritual osmosis and then just kind of grow by spiritual osmosis and then we latch on to the brand new convert. It's kind of like just kind of not maintaining what should be maintained. Have you ever felt that way yourself? Because when you say, when you listen to this, you're thinking, boy, he's talking about me. Like, I feel like I need to be maintained. Like, that's part of the reason why I'm here. I mean, we hear about all this evangelism and new birth and praise the Lord for that, but it's like, I've been here for decades. Can I tell you, you're part of the solution. You're part of the solution. When Paul visited these churches, he didn't go and visit every single soul. He helped equip the leaders who in turn would help equip the saints who in turn would then minister with, amongst themselves. So that when you come here, it's not the country club of your aisle and the country club of your aisle and the clique of your aisle and the section over here. It's, these are my brothers and sisters in Christ and they're coming, being part of the body of Christ and if I'm part of the body of Christ, it's my responsibility to not just maintain a relationship, but actually edify and build them up. Like me being here to speak has a level of edification, but it's no less valuable than your level of edification to one another. And so if there's a sense of, well, you know, I'm here. I would like to have my relationship maintained. Okay. Praise the Lord. So how are you helping to maintain others' relationships? Because by helping to maintain the others' relationships with love, you yourself are going to be maintained. And it may be that sometimes it's with a pastor or with a leader. It may be sometimes it's with another layperson. But I hope as you grow in the Lord, you see equal value in both. There's going to be times where there will be a need for investment and maintenance from a leader when it comes to spiritual, significant, like major spiritual issues or, or tragedies or deaths or whatever. But let's not despise, let's not think little of when I say despise, that's what I mean, think little of the opportunities that we have around us to be able to maintenance those relationships with one another. Okay? I mean, we have an entire chapter of Acts given to internal maintenance within the body of Christ. That's kind of a big deal. Let's not miss out on that. Okay? Certainly not at the expense of souls being saved. But let's not miss out on just how equally important the new convert and the faithful believer are. Because the new convert and the faithful believer, guess what? They eventually converge into growing members of the body of Christ. They do. That new convert, that new soul who's being saved, assimilates through discipleship 
to the body of Christ. And they grow, and you grow, and you're like this. At least that's the way it should be. Or does the new car smell wear off, and then we just have to go get another one? I mean, I say that at some level tongue-in-cheek, but it can happen. May that not be the case here. I don't think it is. I see a lot of people who really love on each other a lot. Praise the Lord for that. May we continue in that, but may we also grow in that. Perhaps as you walk in the room and you see a particular soul, and it's like, you know what? I don't know why, but they stick out. Just go say hello. I mean, maybe the maintenance, maybe the relationship building just simply consists of sitting down with someone that you didn't sit with last week when you come to a Sunday evening service. Maybe it's just simply asking them how their week was. Maybe it's something like, on a fifth Sunday, fifth, you know, outreach Sunday, having them over and not doing anything extravagant, but, you know, just, you know, the whole kind of relational stuff. You know, those are simple but necessary ways where we maintenance and strengthen our biblical relationships with Christ, or with Christians. Okay, let's pray. Father, thanks so much for this day. Thank you for this passage. Lord, admittedly, it seems to be much of Paul's travel log as opposed to his preaching, as opposed to seeing a number of souls come to Christ. But Lord, we see much value in those souls who are mentioned, those who were growing and being strengthened by Paul's ministry, and in particular to the leadership of those in places where they in turn can minister, where those souls can minister. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the body of believers. We thank you for the relationships that you have placed us into that we will enjoy for eternity. So God, may we not just value them on the other side of life, but we may, be, may we value them on this side of life. Lord, to those who, frankly, might be struggling with bitterness, where they serve, and perhaps they struggle with significance, perhaps they struggle with recognition, perhaps they feel that they aren't being noticed or aren't being valued. God, first of all, um, may each one of us love one another as you love us. But God, also, may, we, may, may you guard our hearts against that. May you guard us from the tendency to find our identity in what we do as opposed to who we are. Thank you so much for the, the preaching of the gospel this morning for Pastor Kent where identity and our role in the body is defined by you and thus our significance is infinite and eternal even if it isn't necessarily immediately visible. God for the soul that would come here that um, that may struggle just with being encouraged of sticking to it and persevering in the faith. May you bring souls to them. Think of those who aren't able to be here on a Sunday evening in the middle of the winter, who might be live streaming this, who um, struggle with even just relating or just having contact with the body. They do it digitally. God, bring those souls to mind for us in our prayers and then just also our communication so that we might be able to encourage them Lord, help us to be good maintenancers of the relationships that you have ordained here at Grace Church. And may others see that and glorify you. In Christ's name, amen.